want you to listen. Then what? Share it. The Melbourne Youth and Social Workers Group and the Knowledge on Tick podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Boonarong and Wurundjeri people, their elders past and present. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the land, her children and our families. We would like all of us to show respect for each other, Mother Nature and the creatures on the land and the sea. Hey everyone, the Melbourne Youth and Social Work Facebook group would like to welcome you to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. We are Josh and Nat and we will be your co-hosts for the potty. Knowledge on Tick is a podcast offering real-life conversations and insights every week with workers in the field covering a range of topics surrounding the youth and social work world. We are so grateful to have you here and happy listening. All right, well, welcome back to the Knowledge on Tick podcast. This is episode number two. Mm. Um, today we're joined again by my lovely co-host Nat. Hello. And we're also joined by um, Joey Herrich. Hey guys. <laughs> if, Joey, could you give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself? Sure, absolutely. So my name's Joey Herrich. I currently am a uh, national trainer for a conflict resolution uh, agency that delivers training for people around Australia who are kind of forward-facing or front-facing and deal with difficult uh, challenging human behaviour, but way back when, when I first started work, I um, started as a police officer in Victoria Police and I spent 20 years with those guys in a variety of different roles that we could probably talk about later on. Then um, there was a little bit of a moment, a moment of clarity in my life about two years before I resigned from the police in 2015 where um, I decided that I probably should start refocusing on my approach to supporting the community. And so I ended up finding myself working for YSAS uh, a year later. So in 2015, I worked for YSAS. It was, I was with YSAS for about a year and a half and then transitioned to Jesuits and then transitioned into the job that I'm currently at. So that's kind of uh, where I find myself now. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. Welcome. Um, so we start all of our podcasts off with five questions yep. for the guests to kind of get... Um, Get, the, get it all flowing. Um, so the first one is what did your parents do for work? Okay, so this is an interesting thing. My parents were migrants to Australia, so they're, they're Greek-Egyptian. Um, we've got Greek heritage that ended up settling in Egypt. Then from Egypt, my parents met and they migrated to Australia, I don't know, 45, 50 years ago. Uh, prior to leaving Egypt, my dad was a fitter and turner, like an engineer, mm-hmm. and my mum was an accounts clerk. Um, they came to Australia. Um, Dad continued on with fitting and turning when he was here and Mum ended up working for Peter's Ice Cream and doing a bunch of different things. But eventually they ended up running their own cleaning business. So, yeah, uh-huh. Mum and Dad were cleaners basically and ran a cleaning business for a bunch of different offices and things like that. So Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Awesome. Who is the most famous or well-known person in your phone book? Oh, you know, <laughs> I had a really good thing about this and I actually went through my phone book. I don't know anyone famous. I really don't know anyone famous. I've bumped into people that were famous. I sat next to Kylie Minogue at a cafe once. Yeah, okay. Uh, so that was that was, was the icon. Cool. That was pretty cool. Yeah, but um, I didn't manage to get her phone number, so she's <laughs> in my uh, and I. But I tried. I, I tried um, until her security choked me out and took me away. So, but I got so close to getting her phone number in my phone book, but no, no famous people. No, I had no one exciting either. Dude. Yeah, yeah. We um we're just hoping for I think like the golden yeah the golden sort of story yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, well, we had um our last guest had Dustin Martin. 
Wow. It's number. Yeah. And so we were like, that's, that's actually. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. that's. It's understandable. Sadly, no. Yeah. No Dustin Martins. I'll take, <laughs> I'll take the opportunity and say, did you ever take a statement from anybody famous? Um, uh, if you're allowed to yes, explain the yes, story. Yes, I, I did. I spoke to, but not to take a statement, I just spoke to a Sam Newman in, re, in relation to something many, oh. many years ago. Yeah. Probably a number of uh, things. That yeah, yeah, Sam about. Newman, but, but definitely it was not in relation to a crime. It was just we were talking to him about something else. Yeah, so, fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Ah, worth a try. Mm. <laughs> Uh, what job wouldn't you do? Um, look, to be honest, I think work is a funny thing and if you can uh, find something you enjoy about any job, then you never work a day in your life. So there's really not a job I wouldn't do, you know. Um, some jobs obviously have better benefits than others and some not. But at the end of the day, I don't know, I just kind of enjoy what I what I do. Everything in life's a good experience if you can find, if you can just shuffle away all the crap at the top of it. So cleaning toilets. I mean, I've done that. My parents were cleaners all their life and yeah. I've cleaned crap out of toilets. I didn't mind it because it paid. So, you know, it. it's not really something I wouldn't do, I don't think. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's a good attitude to have. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Such a good attitude. Yeah. yeah. I started like reeling things off when we yeah. did ours. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Nats, this was long. That's it. <laughs> you just got to find the pleasure in everything, you know. From Mine was working in a morgue. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what the pleasure there would be. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a lot of dead people and there can be some morbid fun you can have. But... Yeah, yeah, the gallows humour. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Got to have it. Yeah. Fair enough. So can you tell us what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It was, yes, um, it was around kind of um, your interpretation of stress or problems, right? And, and someone once said to me, if it's not going to be a concern in five years, then don't give it five minutes of stress. Mm. So it was kind of around that. So and, and naturally I'm built genetically to be a stressed out person, highly strung, but that kind of helped me just put things in a perspective and understand, you know what, if this isn't going to be a problem in five years, why am I giving it more than five minutes stress, you know, and, and it's kind of helped. It's not a perfect science, don't get me wrong, I still stress out and I stay up at night thinking about things, but that was a really good bit of advice. If yeah. it's not going to cause you issues in five years, then don't give it more than five minutes. Yeah. That is a good one. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. definitely heard that one before. Yeah. It's yeah. a good one, though. There's, there's lots of little, you know, um, philosophies and things, but that one was a really good one for me. It resonated. So, mm. yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, and you touched on this a little bit with your introduction, mm. and I know that this the answer to your question could potentially land us in the middle of your story. Sure. But what is your aha moment, the moment that you thought, this is this is why I do this job? Yeah. Um, so I started... Um, uh, helping people in helping roles when I was 14, I started training young kids in gymnastics. And and I started to find this, um, not a skill, but but a real desire to want to help people get better at what they do, whatever that is, whether it's it was gymnastics or anything. And so what I ended up doing was finding myself um, gravitating towards roles that, that were helping roles, supporting people becoming better versions of themselves. So it started at 14, 15 when I started teaching people gymnastics. Then it went into um, personal training or running a gym where I was supporting people getting better physically and mentally. Then it went into the police where I was supporting people there. Then it went into um, social services and now it's found itself where I am now, which is um, training people in resolving crisis and managing difficult behaviours. So my whole way through life, it's been the same thing. And so the aha moment was way, way back when mm. in my teens when I thought I really enjoy helping people and, yeah. and helping them get better. So that was it. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned your fitness in amongst that. You yes. obviously worked at a yes. gym. You did I gymnastics. Did. There's a lot of stuff there. I wore leggings. 
That's exactly what I wanted to know. Yeah. In obviously the role that you do now, there isn't that physical aspect. Do you, yeah, do you favour one over the other? Do you think they interconnect? Do you miss that sort of role? Yeah. I think now exercise and the physicality of things now is more for me. It's, a, it's something personal for me now where I, I try to do it just to keep my own health and fitness, but more so the, the, the relationship it's got with my mental health. So I do that. I do the physical stuff for me now. Mm. Um, now it's more around developing people um, in a more mm, psychological, pro-social, um, psychosocial way. So, so helping them develop academically and, and through knowledge and things. That, that's, that's kind of my preference now. So as I've gotten older, I don't want to be jumping around and doing star jumps anymore or burpees. Mm. I want to teach people how to do that with their brain so <laughs> make their brain fitter yeah. and more capable. Yeah, so definitely starting to, to, to drift. Back in the old days, I won't lie, I loved the fitness component and the challenge of the mind and body, but now it's mm. more around developing the mind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I can concur with that because you have personally trained me and you're a ball breaker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did well though, Nat. Thank you. Yeah, we used to run a... A little PT session for the staff here, and was part of um, cool. morale building and things like that. Yeah, and that you smashed it. You did well. Someone that was smoking forty cigarettes a day. Yeah, you did well. Hey, you impressed me. So <laughs> you impressed me. Yeah. yeah, that's good. And I think you cut down from forty cigarettes. I have. Yeah, yeah. Good. We're ticking heaps of boxes good. here today. Yeah, you're, you're a healthy person. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's it. One it, step at a time. It's yeah. so funny, like you mentioned the the health, mental health sort of um, aspects because. It's obviously something people talk about a lot in yeah, this industry. Um, I feel like at the moment, which is good, we're talking about it, but yeah. it's obviously been something that's been needed or needed to be yeah. talked about for a long time. And I heard a little um, anecdote, which was something along the lines of if you're feeling sick or, um, you know, you go to the doctor or you go to the gym to keep your body healthy, but there's this sort of stereotype or this um, sort of... Uh, taboo. Taboo, thank yeah. you. Yeah, perfect. Around yeah. mental health and people seeking going to a counsellor or developing even as an adult into learning new skills or um, re-engaging with education. Absolutely. But, yeah, m- most particularly I think around like seeking um, yeah. counselling and, and mental health support. Absolutely. You yeah. know, it, it, it's funny, in 2020 this shouldn't be an issue anymore. It mm. just shouldn't be. But, but there's still so much taboo around people's perception of being broken or being crazy or not being right or not being normal. Gosh, if you haven't had a bad day where you needed what I used to call a checkup from the neck up, you know, if you haven't had mm. a bad day where you need that, something's not right. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's the human condition where we end up finding ourselves in some really down days and down spaces. And so if you can seek the support of someone who's trained or, you know, impartial or supportive, why wouldn't you? It just yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I, I see a life coach now. I see a life coach at least once a month because yeah. I know if I don't, I, I run off track things from my past, building resilience, understanding self um, starts to run off track. And so once a month I see a life coach, I unpack a heap of crap with him and he gets me back to the good version again. If I don't, I'm not, the, I'm not my best version, so I give myself my opportunities. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I guess it's, um, it's really up to the individual and, and at the end of the day your perception of the value of getting mental health um, attention, but, you know, it's crucial. It's, mm. it's just, it just is. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be part of who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially yeah. in this field, working with other people who are suffering their own sure. mental health, trauma, you know, the, the list is long. Mm-hmm. Um, the old thing of, like, you've got to put the oxygen mark on, mask on yourself First. before you help anybody else. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, how can we rock up to work every day if we're not 
as close to 100% as we could be. Definitely, mm. yeah. And, and, I mean, in a role like this, it attracts people who have high levels of empathy and so you're giving constantly and genuine amounts of it. And if you're not sustaining those levels, you, compassion fatigue is a massive risk. You're mm. going to burn yourself out. So you'll be able to feed back in again and recharge yourself. And if you don't, sick days, compromised ability to help people, you know, they're all the side effects. And then you take that home and you end up not giving the loved ones in your life the attention mm. they need too. Yeah. There's other ramifications. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other thing, you, like you touched on, which is interesting, mental health as an overarching banner has a massive stigma. But yeah. mental health isn't necessarily, you know, the diagnosed person mm. who's got ma- major depression who can't get out of bed in the morning. You know, that might be someone that comes to work every day and thinks, I think I'm a bit of a fraud. I don't know if I'm... You know, I don't know if I'm giving the best that I can. You know, I'm pouring from an empty cup, whatever that might be. It yeah, doesn't yeah. mean that you have a specific diagnosis or that no. you've been hospitalised or no, you've been medica- medicated. Your mental health is your mental health and it's Absolutely. the same as your physical health as if, you you know, we're going to the gym to work out. Yeah. And I think a big part of that stigma is that people think if they identify with having mental health issues or even mm. things like having a mental health day off mm. work, mm. it's that they're significantly unwell and they're pigeonholed mm. and it's not... That's not the case at all. Definitely. We, we need to look at the definitions that are being run around now, like yeah. what people's understanding is. If people can understand mental health means health, not just having something wrong but maintaining health, you know, and redefine people's understanding, I think there'll be less taboo around it and people will be a bit more inclined to go, okay, my mental health is not where it needs to be. I need to improve it through strategies, you know, whatever that is, mm. you know, intensive or non-intensive. So, mm. yeah. And an ideal world would be that, you know, people that utilise the gym every second day or every day, whatever that might be, that people implement the same support and health for their own mental yeah. health and that they sit equally yeah. on a on a trajectory, not one without the other. You know, it's funny thing you say that. Someone in my training the other day said to me, you know, Joey, if you take care, if you brush your teeth every day, you should do something for your mental health every day. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You brush your teeth every day, sure. Do something for your mental health every day. 15 minutes, go for a walk, do some mindfulness, you know, mm. um, do, do something that you know um, contributes to improving or at least maintaining good mental health. Mm. Why not? And that doesn't have to necessarily be sitting there meditating for 20 oh, no, minutes, no. reading a mantra yeah, to yourself. Exactly, exactly. That could be going for a walk. Yeah. 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 It, it could be playing some distracting game that gives you the brain <laughs> the opportunity just to switch off the frequency for a second, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, and just digest the day or, or you know, consolidate, do whatever. Yeah. 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 And I've definitely heard before people say, oh, you know, I didn't, um, if they've had sort of a weekend off or whatever else, and they'll say, oh, you know, I was super lazy, I just binged watch Netflix, that's also okay. If you better. need to sit there and yeah. retract from the external world, especially in a field like ours where you are empathetic to a lot of things, yeah. you take on a lot, compassion fatigue is massive. massive, you know, that is actually a really good self-care tool is to sit mm. down, disassociate and not engage with anything mm. but, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians Love or it. whatever trash TV it is that helps you mm disconnect. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm guilty of that and I, and I actually shouldn't Keeping use up. that word. Yeah. Uh, maths. I've been, I've yes! Been maths. Absolutely. Oh, damn it, I didn't want to, but yeah. it's just that I watched one episode and I got addicted again, but I really love it. Do you have a favourite couple? Um, The new couple, the really good-looking guy. Okay. The, the guy that plays the guitar and yes. the singer. Don't know his name, but, yeah, man crush hard on him. Um, and his girlfriend's beautiful too, so, <laughs> or wife. Yes, they are married. Yeah, that's right. Had yes. a commitment ceremony. Yeah, yeah. Best way to yeah find someone 
he's uh, 10 seconds into it, marry them and then hope for the best. And have it filmed on um, oh, on live TV. No bad news there. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to have a, uh, to ask you a little bit about your time in the police, but I sure. think I think this is a, a reasonable opportunity. We've got a male guest, mm. a male co-host. Oh. I just want to put it out there to anybody listening that's ever contemplated the idea of pursuing seeking support around their mental health. Mm. Yeah. I can tell you I've done it. Mm. It's super easy. It's not difficult. Mm. You literally book an appointment with the doctor. You might have to make it a double. They ask you to fill out a form. Absolutely. They ask you a few questions about why you're seeing them. Yeah. They give you an open referral to a clinician, uh, whichever you choose, or they can suggest one for you. Mm. It's heavily subsidised by Medicare. Mm. You go, you book it in, you get a whole bunch of shit off your chest. Mm for I think a maximum of 10 sessions in a year, which is mm. about once a month. It's so easy. It's so good for you. Mm. Please, mm. like, as you know, in terms of, like, breaking down the stigma of seeking support for your mental health or this boys don't cry or this mm. bullshit that goes around, mm. if anyone's thinking about it or if you know someone else is thinking about it, it's super easy. Mm. Um, it literally, it, yeah, it's as easy as booking in a haircut as booking in time at the gym, um, please, please go and do it. Mm. And often I think that first step is the hardest part. It's about actually making that phone call. Yeah. It's not yeah. the longevity of your 10 sessions or whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we as a human race often when we are in those states think that it's just us mm. and that maybe people wouldn't understand mm. um, or, you know, everybody else seems to be coping and I'm not. Um, and often the hardest part is that first step sense of isolation, yeah. the sense that you're different from everyone else, you're broken. Yeah. There's actually another way to access it too, and that is through their workplace. If, you, if you're working in a formal environment where you've got EAP, Absolutely. there's counselling through work, and it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, workplace-related. It can be anything. Yeah. Mm. You know, they usually, most providers now are around three three sessions, which can extend off to six and more. But, yeah, there's, there's plenty of options. Like you said, Nat, the hardest part is getting out of the chair and, and making the call and not feeling like you're the lone ranger here, but actually it's pretty normal part of life. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And not dissimilar to the first time you step into a gym. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. You know, Those you're challenges. like, oh, my God, nervous. If you've ever done any martial arts or anything yeah. like that, yeah. you, you step in there and you're super nervous, yeah. you know, you think everyone's judging you. Yeah. yeah. You think that you're going to be the only person that's yeah. sort of experiencing this and everyone's well above you. Mm. And then once you sign the paperwork and you get on the mat or you jump onto the machines very quickly, mm. you realise, hang on a second, mm. there's a whole bunch of other people in a very similar boat to me. Mm. And I'm totally comfortable now yeah. and, and it's okay. Normalises so, it. Normalizes yeah. Absolutely. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally agree. Mm. Totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah, that. look, but, I've, uh, accessed, I've accessed uh, EAP, I've accessed counsellors, I've, I've uh, been on uh, mood stabilising medication mm. um, through the years because obviously the types of work that I've done have come with inherent risks mm. and inherent little um, uh, kind of um, spikes of trauma that occur through, through those careers and, so, yeah, I've had to manage it and, and I've managed it well, you know. Mm. I've managed it really well through, yeah. through supports, um, medications, all sorts of different options. So, yeah, mm. yeah. highly, highly recommend it. That's it. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like I said, I am I'm interested to hear. I, I've um, worked with a few different people who were police officers. Sure. You certainly have worked with a lot more. Mm. <laughs> I stereotypically, and please correct me if you think that I'm wrong, I, was, I always get surprised when I hear about people who were police officers and they leave and pursue a different career. For me, it seemed like a career that you you really do the long haul. Yeah. 
and a lot of people get in and they stay in and they retire and good on them. But I always get, I always, I always interested. I'm like, ah, why is it that you left? Like, yeah. what, what's the story? Yeah, of course, there could be a negative aspect to yes, it yes. Um, for the reason that they left. But like one, one lady I worked with in a previous job um, was uh, sent out to do case management with the bushfires. I yes. think after Black Saturday, okay. mm. learnt a lot more. I'm assuming um, felt that she could sort of turn her her work or career in that direction and started working for community services. Yep. Um, so that's one example. But, yeah, could you kind of give us a bit of a yeah. an update or a bit of background around your time with the police sure. force? And, yeah. yeah. It was a really funny thing, me getting into the police, and it wasn't a chosen career path for me. I didn't mm. want to be a cop. Absolutely. Mm. In fact, if you if you knew me as a 14-year-old mm. or at least growing up in those teen years, yeah. you'd have thought, that guy's never going to be a cop. No <laughs> chance. In fact, he's probably going to be arrested by the coppers, right? So that's how it all started. And then I was managing a gym um, in my uh, late teens and then I ended up, uh, after I finished school, I ended up managing the gym in a more formal sense up till about 19, 20 years old. And what ended up happening is while I was there, one of the guys that I used to go to school with ended up joining the police. So, so he ended up training at the gym that I was at. And he hammered me, you should join the police, you should join the police. And I'm like, I hate the coppers, what are you talking about? I, I don't want to be a cop, there's no way I want to be a cop, I hate them. Uh, I don't believe in the philosophies and, you know, not, not in those words, I used my own words back then. So, yeah. um, But he hammered me for years on end until around 22, I said, all right, I'll try out for the police. Just, I'll, I'll just, if I, if I don't get in, that's it, leave me alone. And he's like, done, I'll leave you alone if you don't get in. I tried out, I failed dismally, <laughs> failed dismally, right? So there's like, I think back then there was eight testing components, yeah? And I failed on about six of them, the academic components. The fitness side of it wasn't an issue, but mm. the, the academic components. You'd hope like, not managing a gym. Yeah, failed. Yeah, and exactly. to be fair, the fitness side of things still isn't an issue to yeah. pass, unfortunately. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so six of the academic components I ended up failing and then while you're having your final interview, they the back then you'd have a final interview to tell you how you went and it, it gave you some feedback about your application process. And there were three senior police officers there and they said, how do you reckon you went? And I was quite cocky back then and I said, oh, I reckon I went really well. <laughs> and they're like, no. Nah. And they gave me the thumbs down and they said, you actually failed on six of the components. You failed badly. We'd suggest you go back to your gym and that's probably a career for you. And it was it was not, I don't think it was, the intention was to create a fire in me, but boy, but oh boy, boy, it created a fire. And I thought, there's no way you're going to tell me what I can and can't do. Yeah. So I went straight out of there and I went, I went and enrolled in a police preparation program at one of the local TAFEs and I studied my ass off. And it's 12 months between you being able to try again. So 12 months later, I try again. Out of 200 people that apply, I get third. So yeah. The same coppers yeah. are there again and they're like, uh, I go through all the testing, I, I pass, I get my final interview and they're like, what the hell happened? And I said, oh, well, you told me I can't and I knew I could. And one of them, he said, well, you're in. And we're walking out of the little interview room and he puts his arm around me and he says, congratulations, mate, you're in the job. And I felt the blood drain out of me. I thought, oh, what no. the hell have I done? What the hell have I done? I didn't ever want to be a cop and now I'm in. And he goes, you start in two weeks. And I literally thought, I wanted to run. I thought, I don't want to be a cop. This was just a challenge. Yeah. yeah. So I ended up joining. And I, I, to be honest, for the first three or four years, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It was a massive challenge for me because I was arresting people that were doing things and behaving in particular ways that I'd, I'd lived an experience of, right? Mm -hmm. So that was my lived experience. And I thought, I can't do this. This is a challenge. Then I started to find the groove and I started helping people and, and, and eventually I became 
uh, what they call an Austin instructor. I was working operationally. I was training police and I was back in the groove of helping and training and mm. developing people. Mm. Anyway, that OS role ended up finishing at around seven-year mark, six, seven-year mark. And then the police at that time, because we were stationed, our OS unit was down at the Cerberus Navy base, so we exchanged a lot of learning with the Navy. We were building skills mm. that normal police wouldn't build. Anyway, at about the six, seven-year mark, um, the AFP and the UN put a request out to state police officers to offer up skilled police members to do international deployment. And I put my yes. hand up, yeah, and I ended up getting accepted. So for the middle third of my career, I was deployed internationally on short stint deployments. Sudan, Kenya, Egypt, North South America, Thai Burma border, Cambodia, Singapore, all of these little initiatives overseas, um, fact-finding or reconnaissance, humanitarian support. Um, we were educating people overseas. We were working with, you know, highly vulnerable, marginalised, you know, displaced people overseas, mm. bringing that information back to Australia and training government, non-government agencies. So I, I, I found this amazing little um, job opportunity, yeah? Um, and then that kind of wound up. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure, sure. Out of curiosity, when you do travel inter internationally, yes. do you hold any police powers in those countries? No, no, no. Right. So you're working with, you're an NGO over there basically yeah. working with yeah. uh, their own police forces. Or we were under the guise of the uh, UN over there. So so working under the guise of the UN or just simply guides, yeah. guides mm. in areas, yeah? yeah? So some places, they were rural. Sketchy. Yeah, really rural. So no really. firearm? No. No, 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 nothing like that. Yeah. So we were with people who had firearms, but not always, okay. not always. Depending on where we were, firearms were not appropriate. Depending yeah, on where we were. So, so anyway, um, that that stint ended up finishing and I settled at the Dandenong Police Station here and I ran a team of police out there, a multicultural liaison unit, but just specifically focused on multicultural issues, building relationships with the community, working with mon uh, vulnerable, marginalised people, um, whatever you could think of. We are working with forced marriage, sex slavery, illegal migration, human trafficking, we were supporting investigation around terrorism and the outlaw motorcycle gangs. And then towards the last four or five years of my career, we had a strong focus on the, the multicultural. And I don't like using this term, but that's what they were defining them as, gangs in mm -hmm. the local area. So multicultural gangs. And that's where the penny dropped. And I thought, we're working reactively too much. Mm -hmm. You can arrest forever. You yeah. can arrest forever. You can arrest criminals until time stops. But if you can work out what the causal factors are, you can mitigate the flow and you can start working in a more... A smarter way. Mm. So started Proactive. Having, absolutely. Mm. I had really strong connections with YSAS here and we were working really heavily. And at the time, there was a manager here called uh, Warren Eames and he kept on telling me, you're a, you're a community, you're a youth worker, a community worker in a blue uniform. Mm. And I didn't understand what he meant, but the penny slowly and surely dropped and he was another influential person in my life. Eventually, I got to the point where I thought, you know what, I don't think I'm a cop anymore. I think I'm more suited to become a social worker. So I came on board with YSAS mm. and in the year and a half that I was working with YSAS and Jesuits, I think I prevented more crime with young people, young vulnerable people than I ever did in the police force in 20 years. Mm. So wow. Did your, when you started, as you, as you say, the, the penny slowly dropped, yeah. which I would imagine you would have had to create a plan to decide to leave the police and, yeah. and, and, and enter the community you know, services. It wasn't even a plan. It was like the universe said, just go this way. <laughs> Yeah. Just go this way. This is where you got to go. I mean, logistically, though, yeah, like yeah, you, wouldn't yeah. have, you wouldn't have handed in your four weeks' notice no, and, no, and no, applied no, for a job. No, it was nothing like that. What I'm curious about is, is did you find that other police members, or sorry, let me rephrase, did you start to have the, and I'm doing air quotes here because yeah. this is common, the yeah. do-gooder yes. mentality, that, did you start to feel that you had that within you but, but you were kind of um, 
felt felt pressure from other police that you were wrong, that they were not never going to be helped, Look, so on and so forth. Yeah, there's there is a uh, philosophy around um, arresting criminals. Okay, mm. that's that's what police do, mm. uh, and certainly there was a massive challenge with me trying to prove a point around proactive policing. So so trying to demonstrate that what we were doing in a proactive sense to stop people committing crime was as important as arresting people who were committing mm. crime. Now, you can't quantify how much crime you stop proactively. Mm. You can quantify reactively how many, how many people you're arresting. We caught 10 burglars today. You've got 10, okay? I can't say that we spoke to 30 young people in a night, so we stopped 10 of them committing some antisocial behavioural crime. Mm. I can't say that because I had nothing to... But, but what we did see, we were running programs with the police where we were taking um, youth leaders out and we were, we were um, frequenting hotspots in Dandenong and other areas and we saw a massive drop in crime stats, antisocial crime stats. So the, the way we were demonstrating that was to show that the reactive coppers didn't have to go out and deal with that stuff, yeah? yeah. But what you said before, massive. It was a massive problem. We were seen as being more closely aligned with the community and the young people than we were with and so there started to be a little bit of, you know, tension around what we were doing and, and the value of it as opposed to st stereotypical reactive policing. Yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. And I guess it's a bit of a brotherhood, right? You get indoctrinated. Yeah. When you join the police, you get indoctrinated. They pull you apart, they put you back together again Yeah. in a way that suits the style of the job. So mm. you get indoctrinated. And as part of that... Um, I only speak for myself, okay, and yeah. I, don't, I don't represent the views of Victoria Police, but there's there's a feeling like there's nothing else for you if you leave this job. Mm. If you leave this job, you're gonna be you're gonna be emptying bins on the side of the road because there's you don't have any other skills and there's nothing else left for you, and that can put a lot of police in fear of leaving, and so they end up staying and they become very unhealthy human beings, mm. really unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a risk. Um, I'm, I was it was scary leaving the police. It was scary leaving superannuation, yeah. you know, uh, structure, mm. um, sick leave, money. There's a lot of money, you know, support. It was scary. But, man, when I found my feet, I became a new human being because I never knew anything but policing yeah. in my yeah. adult life. Yeah. 20 so, years is a long haul. Yeah, it, it, it creates who you are, yeah. It's yeah. like you become that person. Yeah. So it's, it's different. I've made massive, massive growth in the last years that I've been out. Uh, the police more so. I feel like I'm a baby again growing <laughs> and learning, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And I want to be clear, at least from my point of view with my question is because um, I've seen that and I, and bit of this, so I kind of have, it's kind of funny because in my career, I've kind of flipped and flopped between the community service youth worker yeah. mindset yeah. and the policing corrections kind of like I started Formal working. structure, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I went into Parkville wanting to be literally like I'm going to save the world and help all the kids. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Quickly learned that wasn't the case. No. Accepted that, was happy with that, enjoyed the job. Started working in like the response team, so yes. responding to incidents. My mind frame started to turn a little bit to like these are all just a bunch of crooks and yeah. you know, they're never going to change and they're all little shits and what have you. Started then worked in the police custody role yeah. where I worked with police and and they had that mentality, generally mm. speaking, about young people and most of the people that they were interacting with in general. But mm. I understood it. I could understand where they were coming from mm. because I would say probably 90% of the people they were dealing with were adults who mm. were recidivist offenders, committing violence, um, all the different people you mentioned, you know, alpha motorcycle gangs, drug dealers, 
all the different things. I don't need to, you know, everyone knows what criminals do. Mm-hmm. And then there's 10%, give or take, that are young people who are traumatised and, and have... trauma-based, yeah, mm. yeah. And then for me, I was like, <clears throat> not going to be doing this anymore. What What is it that I want to do? And I flipped back to that community services youth mm-hmm. role. Mm-hmm. And so now working in the in the role that I'm doing with police and with community services, it bugs me, but I also understand it. I understand yeah. where it comes from. Yeah. So it's a real challenge. Um, but, yeah. Your, your thinking and who you are will be formed by your environment, right? So so yeah. when you're in the customer centre and you're formed by what you're exposed to every day and then when you're out of it, and, but but I guess by the sounds of it, you had the insight to kind of know that there's another side to this as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's people who commit crime. There's people who have trauma-based responses because of what life, the way life's dealt their cards. So there's all sorts of different reasons. But... Yeah, I think those who are the truly um, woke ones, if yeah. I use that word, yeah. Yeah, are the ones that Your are, daughter would be proud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the ones that are, that are in an environment and go, well, hang on a minute, there's got to be something else to this. This yeah. can't, this can't right. be it. This yeah. just can't be it. There's yeah. got to be something else. So, yeah. you know, and I think when I was in the police, I started to wake up like the Matrix. I pulled the plugs out and thought, there's got to be something else. You had the blue else. pill. Yeah, yeah, I had the blue. I took the blue pill. Yeah. <laughs> and I woke up and I thought, there's got to be something else to this. Now... Here's the interesting thing is that now as policing starting to evolve, and this should have happened years ago, but as policing starting to evolve, they're starting to take a bit more of an informed approach to trauma, young people, complexity, um, looking at drugs and alcohol as more of not a crime but but a particular social illness, you know. Yeah, health issue. Like, yeah, absolutely, you know. Mm. It's, God, it took it, them a while, but, geez, they're getting there slowly, you know. Yeah. And, and it'll inform change and you'll see that socially. You'll see things changing, you know, in, in statistics, I guess, but it's going to take still a long time because you need police to actually be educated in this field as well. So. Yeah. 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 And, and all good things take time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I was and I was going to sort of say that it's a, a very long-standing organisation, the Victoria Police, mm. founded on some pretty strong morals, absolutely. which has then built what we see today. And I guess I just want to sort of be clear that absolutely not a, you know, not um, in any way kind of criticising them. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, because yeah. there is so much good work that the police do. Like absolutely. we see it every day. You know, essentially we're all safe and protected because we yeah. have the police doing what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our line of work, we do see that there's sort of some things that could be improved. And you do mm-hmm. note that they are being improved. There's like the mm. multicultural teams, the proactive mm. policing, mm. Um, you know, extending youth resources, you know, there's yeah. all, all sorts of, there's great, there's great strategies and approaches occurring now. It's, mm. yeah. it's, it's wonderful to see and it's, it's um, you know, reassuring, I guess. Absolutely. It's very reassuring. Yeah. Especially one of the good things that I'm seeing at the moment with police is their, their collaboration with um, mm-hmm. services, you know. In the past it was us against them. Now yeah. it's this massive collaboration because they know there's value in, in working together and you get, twice as much done with twice of hands yep. and they utilise the expertise of people like yourself, you know, they utilise them because they know they're not youth, youth workers or community service workers so they need your brains and yeah. your approach. Yeah. And you're doing something that we're yeah. not doing yeah, yeah. but it's working. Correct. So help us with that disconnect, yeah, yeah, exactly. which is and good. Help us understand yeah. too, yeah. Which is yeah. great. It's a great, great, um, a great new approach. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I'm interested in regards to your new, like your Ooh, role that yes. you're doing at the moment, your yes. fancy role. What what would be like a situation in which someone would be like, "Hey, Joey, can you come out mm. and do a training?" Like, what would that look like? Like a day in your training life? Yeah, sure. So, oh, can I do a quick plug of the company? Yeah, yeah. sure. It's, it's called Conflict Resolution Training and Consultancy, um, and uh, it's a national company. So basically, the company delivers training to staff in 
a variety of different um, roles that are forward-facing, either in person or by phone, that will deal with difficult, challenging human behaviour in any respect. So it could be uh, clients, oh. it could be customers, it could be anything in between, ratepayers, residents. So we're right. at the moment we're the preferred provider for councils, DHS and job actives, employment, uh, uh, social services and things right across Australia. But basically, just to give you a kind of an overview of the course, yeah. um, we teach um, founded techniques around um, de-escalating and negotiating with people who are heightened in an emotional state. We encompass uh, trauma-informed care models. We encompass um, approaches around AOD, mental health, all of that sort of stuff to kind of inform an approach to being able to use these um, uh, proven best practice skills around de-escalating and calming people then working to resolution and, and fixing the core problem. Um, we do theory. It's a full day of training. We do theory for the first, um, let's say, half of the day. Yeah. And in the second half of the day, we have three method actors that turn up and the participants of the training, it's not a mandatory component of the training, but the participants of the training design three roles that basically they would encounter on a, a frequent basis. Yeah. And the method actors will play those roles out and the participants, after the full day of training, Get to practice what they've learned. Yeah. So it can be anything from someone who's emotional and distressed and crying all the way up to an armed offender who's uh, taken someone hostage and you have to go in and resolve the crisis. So um, if, let's say, for instance, if I was adapting it to a social service, we would have, um, we would talk about, you know, working with your clients, what could form, what could um, what could contribute to them being emotional, etc. Then uh, second half of the day, we'd create a scenario around them experiencing a high-end crisis or trauma. You've got to go in and calm them down over a period of, say, five to seven minutes or longer if it need be. Yep. Or they're armed or they're having a big AOD episode or mental health episode and, yeah, you've got to deal with that. So That's interesting really you say that. When yeah. I did my training initially when I worked for corrections in the, yep. the early years yep. um, and they did block trainings, they used to do that. Yep. They had the method actors come in. Yep. Yep. And I am someone who is really uncomfortable in role plays yeah. in trainings. As yeah. soon as you sit down, they go, we'll have a role play after lunch. I'm yeah. like... Sneak out. Yes, yes. <laughs> I need to go. Yeah. Um, but I remember that was my first interaction of engaging in a formal sort yeah. of training with yeah. an organisation that I was working for. Um, and they're full on. They go at it. Like oh, yeah, they yeah. don't give up. Like we had people flipping tables. Yeah, and and I was like, this is, and I remember telling people about it when I was, because yeah. I was working part-time at uni at the same time. And they're like, what the fuck? Yeah, I was yeah. like, yeah, like this dude came in and lost his shit. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it works because yeah. it puts them under pressure and you go, mm. I think the situation I had had, the the guy was sort of framing himself that he couldn't read or he couldn't write and couldn't read and write, sorry, and he was on a corrections order and no one wanted mm. to help him and he'd been That's fucked it. over his whole life, right? And that was his thing. And I, he's screaming at me and I remember going bright red and everyone's staring at me, I'm mortified right yeah, now. Right. And the only thing I could think of is he kept saying, I can't fucking read, I can't fucking read. And I said, who said you couldn't learn? There you go. And he nice. sat down and was silent. There you go. And it was awesome at the time. He's like, that's really good. You shocked me. I just couldn't even think of any lines to keep oh, going. Well done. Well done. But whenever someone says role play in training, yeah. I think of that time and I'm like, some fucking method actor's yeah, going to yeah, come yeah, in yeah. and scream in my face. He was, like, screaming that aggressively. I'd, like, spit on my oh, face. And I was yeah, like, this dude loves his job. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's kind of like that, but we don't watch each other because that puts way too much yes. pressure on each other. Yeah. Um, it's, done, it's done in a very controlled way in that um, uh, the method actors are all trained in human behaviour, so they'll watch the participant and they'll push them to an uncomfortable area but no further. Yeah. So um, they'll be isolated in a room on their own and they'll do it and, and quite literally we warn the participant, if you don't want to stay in the room, just get up and leave. Yeah. It's no safety words or anything like that you need to use. So so if you're kind of feeling uncomfortable, the method actors will watch them and they'll just take mm. them out of their comfort zone and hold them there. 
um, and get them to use all of the little principles and techniques that we, while they're portraying the role, they mm. actually encourage them to use the techniques. Um, so, yeah, it's five to seven minutes. They do it on their own. It's not a mandatory component. They still pass the course, just mm. they learn the theory side of it. Um, but some of some people really like to practice. And yeah, so it's there. But yeah, you're right. Well, and I think it's also yeah. a really good way. If I reflect upon, you know, I've done a shit ton of trainings now. Yeah. But if I reflect upon having a method actor and engaging in a scenario, I actually yeah. found that even as a new worker, yeah, much more productive than any role plays I've done since. Because role plays now, it's you and your colleagues That's sitting in a training, and it's and someone's yeah. pretending to be, you know, suicidal, yeah. or <laughs> someone's pretending to be in a family violence relationship. And most of the time, that's your mate that you work by, nine to five, Monday to Friday, and it's like, I don't want to do this. This yeah, is exactly. a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Or the other person's really anxious or there's a bit of confusion around what you're doing. Whereas mm. with the method actors, it's like they know what they're there to do oh, and it tight. takes away yeah. an element there that I actually think it works a lot better yeah. than doing role plays mm. within your smaller Look, groups. We, we get so much good feedback from it. People come out and they're like, geez, that was real. It yeah. Felt really, really authentic. And the actors are paid. They're, they're, this is their job. They've been doing it for, for our company for about 15 years. So. Wow. This is their full-time role, so they will make it as realistic as possible. And, again, um, the participant, you know, they'll they'll drive the participant to get the best out of it, you know, so it won't be something that they make awkward or unusual, yeah. but more so as realistic as possible. So, yeah, it's um, to get in touch with us, all they need to do is just um, look up the website and contact uh, Heidi, who's our office manager, and, yeah, book in. So yeah. we can take um, 16 people at a time in a course. That's a, that's a normal course. It can be extended more or less depending on what they need to do. Um, there's a few different levels of training depending and it's always customised on the participants. So, um, you know, if, if, say, for instance, we're doing social services, we'll customise based on what the people need. If we're doing, I don't know, gosh, animal management for council, we'll customise yeah. based on them. Mm-hmm. So it's always just adjusted to, to suit. We don't want people leaving thinking that was a waste of time. It wasn't Yeah, absolutely. It's always, yeah, always honed in on what they need. So Yeah. yeah. With, um, I'm just curious now, but with, mm. you mentioned... Um, when you're doing the trainings, there'll be certain stuff that'll say, oh, you know, this is a situation that yep. um, we've experienced. We'll, we'll do this with the method actor. Mm. Um, is there one that you've heard from your group that you're like, shit? Hmm. Yes. Can um, you share it? Yes, I can, okay. and I, but I need to de-identify. Yeah. A council, <laughs> once upon a time, um, seized someone's dog. A dog was at large. It dug its way out of uh, property. Um, the council seized the dog and notified the owner, your dog's been seized, it was at large, please come and pick it up and you've got an X amount of dollars to pay for a fine. Dog wasn't registered, dog at large, and what they call sustenance fees, meaning that if we hold your dog for three days, you've got to pay three days of food. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so the, the the resident goes to pick up their dog and, g'day, I'm here to pick up my dog, here's my money. They bring a dog out and the resident looks at the dog, doesn't recognise the dog and say, that's not my dog. So they they go, oh, okay, hang on a sec, must be a bit of a clerical error. They go back out. Where's um, where's little spot, you know, such and such as dog spot? And there was such a confusion around it, they'd accidentally put the dog down. <gasps> no. Yep. And so the uh, manager of this particular animal management area came out and said, look, we regret to inform you that we've accidentally put your dog down. Well, it turned into a really bad day. Yeah. Uh, a really yes. bad day because it was a very much loved family member. Yeah. And had escaped and now had uh, sadly been put down. So That is not where I thought the story was no, going. it became a really bad issue. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's happened. Um, uh, but again, I 
can't say who. The yeah, absolutely. Was. It was a council in Australia. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's, can you that's imagine? Pretty hectic. So you can imagine the conflict that yeah. arose out of that. Um, and we've played scenarios like that out before. It's all set with sorts of different things like that where, you know, and it's not just council, of course. I don't mean to, to pick on council. No. But, uh, um, lots of different organisations, just miscommunication, things like that, and, and mm. people have erupted, you know, just erupted. And, and yeah, it's, it's really sad, unfortunately, that I'm in a job like this because um, behaviours nowadays are probably worse than they've ever been. People have really, um, they just have a really low tolerance levels. They feel really entitled to get what they want now, yeah. you know, regardless of whether you can or can't help them. They want what they want, they want it now. Mm. Yeah. I don't know where that's come from, like whether it's social pressures or life or what it is, but mm. God knows where it's come from. But people behave really badly now. Mm. I mean, not to bring up the coronavirus <laughs> yeah. paper. We got to talk about it. I mean, you have it, to, right? Yeah. Like, ladies scrapping in Woolworths, yes. and toilet paper is the prime example. I know. Yes. Of, like, what is going on here? Yeah. I yeah. even, as just a human in society, yeah. I'm going places now. Like, if I yeah. go to a cafe and use the toilet yeah. or, you know, I'm go to the bathroom at the shops or whatever, I'm, like, mentally checking if they've got toilet paper. Yeah. And then I'm, like... Surprised people haven't stolen that yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's just, it's become such this, you know, there's no pasta, there's no yeah, toilet paper, there's no nappies, there's no formula. Mm. I'm washing my hands for the first time ever. <laughs> I've literally eaten after going to the gym with my hands and stuff that you feed myself with and I'm washing my hands for the first time ever. I'm a bit yeah. scared. But yeah. not to the point where I'm, um, you know, I'm stocking Catastrophizing. up like a, doom, yeah, like a doomsday prepper. That's I'm not right. doing that. Yeah. No. Well, I think there's two ends of the stick there, right? I think... Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things I've seen even just today on social media. One was a month ago we, as a country, banded mm-hmm. together yeah. amazingly to raise money for the bushfires yeah. and for that horrific yeah. um, experience. For us as a country, we yes. were on fire. Yeah. Fast forward a month and we're scrapping over toilet rolls in I a know. supermarket and you've got the baby boomers that they're sort of mm-hmm. categorising, mm-hmm. no offence to the baby boomers, but they're categorising the baby boomers are stockpiling for doomsday mm-hmm. and your millennials are booking cheap flights to go and die to on Bali. a tropical <laughs> island. And I was like... To be fair, yeah. cheap, I've booked cheap flights, you know. Why you, not? You, why not? Make, take advantage not of the environment. Not stockpiling toilet paper. Yeah. Might as well get cheap flights. Absolutely. Yeah. This yeah. will pass. This will pass. But I think the the, the social damage that's occurring, yes. uh, that, that's going to take a long time to heal after mm. this. So, yes. Yeah. Oh, a lot of the people we get on the Facebook group um, are people entering the social com- the, the community services um, sector for the first time. So we've got a lot of people post questions. It was a really great um, a young lady posted recently, I've got my first shift in resi in a few days. Can anyone give me some suggestions and some advice? Batten was, down the hatches. Well, <laughs> you know what? Like I was kind of expecting that kind of negative retort. Not that that was negative. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely, but the, like, pull up your socks yeah, party absolutely. time. Get ready for it. Yeah. Um, but so many positive comments yes. to, to her. Cool. Yeah. Um, constructive, positive comments, which That's is great. Excellent. Um, I haven't got any feedback from her. She's listening. I asked you the other day. So if you could reply to my comments, we'd be much appreciated. <laughs> Um, but so, and I know that it'll be very difficult, I'm sure, to compile a day's worth of training into into an answer yes. for us. Yes. But if someone is coming in to this um, this sector yes. and they're faced with a challenging situation yeah. and they have not been fortunate enough to participate in a mm. training yet, what would be kind of like your top tips mm. at dealing mm. with that? Um, I mean, stereotypically, you'd probably find it at the front counter, reception, mm-hmm. potentially in a car, mm. um, potentially in like a drop-in space, someone's coming in substance affected, something like that. What would you what would you kind of go to sort of hot 
tips be for someone? Yeah, probably a couple of layers to this answer, but first and foremost, understand the person that's standing in front of you comes with a life experience and sometimes that can manifest in many different ways from, you know, emotion to anger to, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, and, and the second part of that is understand that the emotion will have a fundamental effect over their ability sometimes to think in a logical way. So mm. the, the person you're seeing now at that moment in time who's in crisis isn't the person that they are at their particular normal functioning level. So take the time to allow them to vent, take the time to be an active participant in this conversation, show them levels of empathy and understanding for what they're going through in some way or another, show and prove that you understand what they're going through so that in their mind you shift from someone they've got to fight against to someone that actually understands where I'm coming from and gets the significance of my particular issue at that moment in time, then you'll place yourself in a much better position to be able to influence some sort of answer or fix, you know. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, the worker needs to take care of themselves because this stuff, as I said, can have a really big effect on them. So after events like that, making sure that you get some really good professional soup or uh, supervision, I should say, I shouldn't use acronyms, <laughs> some supervision, asking, you know, folks like yourself with great experience in the area, hints and tips around how to deal with this sort of stuff. But, yeah, certainly making sure that you understand the person that's standing in front of you comes with, it, with you know, things that we can't even imagine they've gone through yeah. and that can manifest in those different behaviours. So don't take it personally. Understand, you know, breathe your way through it. Do your best to empathise and, and validate what they're going through non-judgmentally and then work on those nice calming strategies calming strategies for both them and yourself. So mm. I know that's a bit of a roundabout way of answering it. But yeah. No, that's no, good. Yeah. Would you have any, if it was a professional situation, I'm thinking of um, you know, every worker in the sector has done the training of if you have an issue with a colleague, try to talk yeah. to them about it first, then yeah, go to yeah. your supervisor, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Would your, I guess, conflict management with someone inside your team differ to dealing with a young person or like a um, client or Mm. do you think that there is pretty much the same context under that? you're 100% right. So we get this a lot. Is this training appropriate for internal stakeholders or internal conflict between colleagues? Yeah. 100%. The principles are the same. If you understand the principles of why people behave in particular ways and what happens to the brain and how that manifests, Mm. it's really the same thing and you can apply it to both internal and external exchange that you might be having. So um, if we're doing training that involves, that's got a heavy theme or focus around internal conflict, I adjust it a little bit just to to be able to have those conversations. And also if it's not working, how you kind of approach team leadership and management to to facilitate and mediate sometimes because when two people are emotional, you and the other person are emotional, you don't meet in the middle often. You've got to find someone who will be able to mediate that middle point and and be able to um, in a healthy way help you both understand perspective, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the principles are really, really similar. And the funny part is some people say to me, Joey, can I use this stuff at home? Like, yeah. you, And I'm like, yes. Absolutely. And they come back, they email me weeks later and say, Joey, had an argument with my partner the other day. The stuff you taught me works fantastically. I won the argument. I'm like, it's not about winning. It's about, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's about, but, hey, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Like, hey, Good job. Good job. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's but absolutely. If you understand, like, People come out of the course, I guess, as negotiators, yeah. so negotiating human behaviour. And that can be anything from an executive meeting that you're having during a care team yeah. and trying to influence, I don't know, an external provider, all the way up to something go, goes off in the drop-in space and you're trying to manage um, a really heightened emotional, someone who's having a huge episode at that moment in time, or yeah. a young person or someone. Yeah. So, yeah, it's anything, anything mm. in between. Again, adjusted to what we need on the day. So, mm. yeah. In regards to public speaking... Mm-hmm. 
So you've gone from, like, how many people would you present to? 16? Yeah. Minimum 16 most yeah, of the about, time? Yeah, about 16. It can go up to 30 at a time. It's a small group. It's yeah. not, nothing major. Yeah. yeah. Well, you say nothing major. To me, more than, like, five people's major. <laughs> <laughs> would yeah. you, do you find um, public speaking something that came easily to you or was it something that you had to work and sort of adjust to get your groove? Some people will uh, enjoy talking to large crowds. Doesn't mean they inherently have the skill to do it. They just enjoy it. Um, so it was something I enjoyed, but I wasn't good at it at the start. Okay. I slowly became better at it. And, and you get better through frequency, exposure, good techniques around preparing and planning. So um, if you, and it's not for everyone, mm. public speaking is not for everyone. You know, um, some people have anxiety attacks, you know, or, or have really significant unhealthy feelings around presenting. But don't force yourself. It's not that something you need to or have to do. Mm. But if you enjoy it, just it's a, just a matter of practice and getting better and prepping about what you're going to be doing. You know, as you know, I've done a lot of um, emceeing for music competitions and massive events, weddings, all that sort of stuff. I really enjoy it now. I get off on that stuff. It's mm. fun. Yeah. I, love, I love pumping a crowd up and getting this a crowd into a really great vibe where they enjoy themselves. Mm. It's, it's, it's selfish for me because I love it so much, but I love seeing the effects it has on other so, yeah. yeah, really enjoy it. Really enjoy public speaking. Yeah. I have a very entertaining image in my head of you dressed up in your gymnastics <laughs> lycra, amping up being the ultimate hype man for a crowd okay. at a training. Do you know how we weren't going to talk about anything <laughs> uncomfortable? I'm going to make a disclosure now. Uh, the, you can choose to edit this out or not, but uh, I think the listeners are going to get some, some laughs out of it. Um, so I used to do aerobics routines back in the day when aerobics was cool, right? <laughs> so I'm kind of disclosing my age a little bit here, but, yeah, I'm late 40s. Anyway, we had um, around the corner here in Dandenong, there's, there was an old roller skating ring in Plunkett Road, right? Anyway, I used to roller skate down there years ago when I was young. This is going to a bad place now. It's not going to be good. But anyway, <laughs> um, they 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 encouraged me to do a, an aerobics, a three-minute aerobics display doing an open night, right? And Did it take much, of encu- much encouragement? Not much, no. not much at the time. So um, so they said, look, it's it's a, it's a big event. We've got an open night. We've got um, rollerblading and, and, and stunt displays and all sorts of really cool stuff. Can you come and do a three-minute display? And I'm like, cool, no worries. They launched it on me the day before it was going to happen, so I didn't get to prepare a routine. I quickly put a routine together, edited some music. You know, and back in the day it was tapes. It wasn't like yeah. CDs. So it was tapes. So I've quickly edited some music, got everything ready, did my routine, practised it as much as I possibly could. Out I go, okay, all dressed up, ready to go, you know, in the middle of the, the roll ring, 1,000 people looking at me, right, 1,000 people. The music starts and I start the first 30 seconds of the routine and gone. The rest of the routine was gone. I totally blanked out. So I'm in the middle of doing a grapevine, <laughs> right, left and right. I'm doing this grapevine and I'm thinking, shit, I don't remember the rest of the routine. And I kept doing the grapevine and I'm looking in the crowd and people are starting to make funny faces. They're starting to look at me with a, a kind of element of confusion. And anyway, I told the, the music guy, the DJ, when I do a star jump, that's the end of the routine, <laughs> right? So I'm doing this grapevine and I'm thinking, I can't, I can't recall the rest of the routine. I can't, and so I end up doing the star jump to finish the routine because I literally could feel my face lighting up and not knowing what to do. And I stop and about two people in the crowd are like. That <laughs> <laughs> was crickets, right? And I've bolted off. I've got back in the car and my wife at the time has gone, um, what happened? 
And I said, I forgot the routine. There was tears rolling down <laughs> my face. I was crying on the way out of there because oh, was Absolutely. It was the most embarrassing day of my life. Literally the most embarrassing oh, day. Of my life. So I did I did uh, three grapevines and a star jump as part of my routine. <laughs> that was it. That's brilliant. It was horrible. It was horrible. What was the music? Can you remember? Um, <gasps> I like big butts. Yes. <laughs> remember the song, I like big butts. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 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 Oh, who's the artist? So, um, um, Tone I can't like, think of his name. Like, no, not Tone Loke. Um, oh, that's too M- funny. MC Hammer? MC Hammer? No. Uh, Mix a lot. Mix a lot. Mix a lot. That's yeah. the guy. Oh, that's great. And you're just great vining. Just great vining. And a star jump to finish it. I wish you had that on video. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was the most embarrassing day of my life to completely forget the routines. I like that the most embarrassing part for you isn't the stereotypical male thing of like, oh, gymnastics or, or you know, or performing anything to do with the role, but nothing about that. Like, I'm sure your attire was appropriate with aerobics at the yeah, time. Megan's, it would have been a vibe. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Bike shorts, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. with like, a, I'm sure like a mankini leotard vibe Very going similar. on. Borat, Borat. Yeah, <laughs> Very yeah. Similar. But the most embarrassing part is if you got your routine. Oh, man, that was a killer. And I, I, I never returned to that place again. Would yeah. you return for redemption? Ah, uh, you know, I was so embarrassed, Nat, I don't know if I it was just a horrible day. It <laughs> scarred me. It scarred me. It scarred me. So, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think I can. Yeah. Maybe exposure therapy. Who knows? Revisit Who knows? One yeah. day. Maybe you I never know to, what the I have to put those leggings back on again and go and do something somewhere. You have to yeah. find a roller rink. Yeah. yeah. That would be the challenge. Yeah. There's not many around these days, I don't think. They still exist. Right. If it happens, you have to let Very us know, fun. though. Yeah. I want front row tickets. I think it's going to happen again. I'd like to embarrass myself in other ways now, so, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I'm curious to to take it back a few steps sure. if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. I just when you started to explain the international deployments uh-huh. to me, oh, it yeah. just sounded so fascinating. Mm, mm. You, you rattled off a few different places. Could you take us to a few yeah, some sure. of the work that was done there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the first big one was to Sudan, and it was part of a humanitarian uh, fact finding mission. Um, myself and one other police officer got an opportunity to couple up with. Um, uh, an international initiative, a humanitarian initiative that was sent overseas. And the reason why we were sent was to fact find, gather as much information about migration process at the time because the Sudanese were starting, the South Sudanese community was starting to come to Australia in, in large amounts. Mm. And so Victoria Police was finding themselves behind the eight ball in relation to servicing the community. So they wanted to get information yeah. around what was it like for the people who yeah. were immigrating to Australia in South Sudan, yep. what did that look like? What's the what migration the... process? What was the refugee? Why are they actually even coming to Australia? Um, and they wanted police to go there and then form a, a training package that could help inform police to, to be able to better service the community, understand them, um, mi- minimise the amount of risks in, in relation to dealing with the community, all that sort of stuff. So mm. um, we went there, um, myself and another police officer went there and, um, and we participated in a month-long um, opportunity over there. Um, we went to some very, very rural, rural areas that had only um, had war cease about a year before we got there. So there wow. were still remnants of war everywhere. There was sadly a, a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, death and destruction over there. Still were remnants of it. Um, you know, in the areas that we went to, um, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of rebuilding occurring over there in villages and things like that. The funniest thing was, and I don't mean this in, in, in a humorous way, I mean it in the opposite way, is that these people had nothing, nothing. And we were going to villages where they were living in mud huts. 
and they would give us at their last bowl of rice graciously just to say thank you for coming out and helping yeah. us with whatever was going on. It was it was just heartbreaking. And I reckon that trip, that that was another, remember how you asked me at the start, the aha moment? Mm. Yeah. That was one of the big aha moments about how good life is for us here yeah. and how bad it could be just sheerly because you are born in the wrong place. Yeah. yeah. Luck of the draw. Unbelievable. We went from Sudan, we we moved around Sudan. We were moving a few internally displaced people as well due to war, moving them around and we ended up rescuing one particular young girl who was one of the guide's daughters, uh, sorry, one of the guide's nieces. We got her out of one particular area. Uh, we went to um, Lokichogyo, which is one of the main camps that sees the Sudanese get um, assessed by the UN and then brought to Australia in Kenya. Mm. We went into Nairobi. Um, we worked in Nairobi for a little while as well. And then I ended up moving up towards Egypt and doing, sorry, yeah. The camp you talk about, that the UN are processing people. Yes. Could you paint a picture? Yep. Um, at the time, there was about 70,000 people. We flew over the top of it to get a better look at it. There were 70,000 people in, in that camp. Um, and unfortunately, um, when you mix warring and rival tribes, Mm. Bad things happen. Um, there was rape, theft, murder, um, all sorts of things occurring in that camp. And um, sadly, those people that were in there indefinitely could be in there for life. Kids yeah. were getting born in there and, and, and sometimes not being assessed till they were 13, 14 years old. So this, this camp had been established for a long time. Mm. Now, its capacity is about 140,000 people, 140,000. At the time we were there, it was about 70,000 people. So um, the MCG on a pretty good game. Uh because I think the MCG is about 90, yeah, would you say? Yeah, so if you're looking at the MCG by geography, mm. it was about six times the size of the MCG. Yeah, because yeah. they the live size. there. That's... Yeah. Yeah, they, they have to stay in there. In mud huts and, yeah. and they, supplied, yeah, they mm. supplied rice and, you know, every day they're, they're given morsels of food and they've got to survive off it. So, um, you know, if you've got more food than me, I'll steal it from you. Yeah. I'll take it from you. Yeah. Is there a... A gov- like is there pol- is there a policing of that space? There is. It's, it, it leaves a lot to be desired, though. Sure, yeah. unfortunately. And don't forget, corruption is massive. So yeah. the police could belong to or have affiliation with one particular tribe. So they take care of them, mm. and, and they'll steal the rice or the, the goods of other tribes there. So it's pretty bad. It's really mm. bad. But the funny thing was, um, again, sorry, I shouldn't even use that term, but we um, we went to Egypt to one of the the IOM the the International Organisation for Migrations training facility in Egypt, and some of the people that were at Lokichogyo had been transported up there to participate in something called the Australian Orientation Program or OSCO program, right? So before they come to Australia, um, refugees are put through a two-week orientation program that teaches them everything they need to know about Australia before they get here. Two weeks. Right. Can't speak the language, know nothing about the systems that we have here, but we'll train you how, how to be a good citizen in two weeks. Okay. Right. And then we'll, we'll we'll settle you with some um, IHSS settlement services here and we'll, we'll settle you in. It's a difficult situation. You know, you've got people who've never lived in a Western developed society before and so there's all sorts of challenges there, mm. refugee trauma experiences, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mm. So it's big. it's big. I have two questions. Yeah. One, how long could somebody be at the camp that you're speaking of? What would, could live would and die be? there. No. Like yeah. Live, literally... Live your whole life there. Waiting in a line. Waiting in a line. Yeah. yeah. And, again, corruption. Who gets first in line? Who gets, you know, are you are you classified as more vulnerable or more um, needy of, of mm. being assessed than me, you know? So I could be waiting for years. 
I could skip the queue. I, you know, lots of different reasons mm. and factors play into it. Mm. Yeah. I raise that because I think it's interesting and it's good for people to know, especially in our field, we do do a lot of multicultural work. God, yeah. And for them to know that sometimes it's not not as easy as they've just decided that their country, you know, they want to escape their country because yeah. it's war-torn. And even when that decision's made, yeah. it's not necessarily, okay, cool, we'll chuck you on a plane mm-hmm. and you can go to Australia or you can go here. You know, people can, like you said, live and die in those camps mm-hmm. just trying to escape. And I think sometimes the process that comes before that, you know, often we work with people who have migrated here and, you know, how old were you when you got to Australia? Oh, you mm-hmm. know, I was 13. But for all you know, from the age of two to thirteen, they've been, you know, they've been at that slog just trying to get Absolutely. to a country where they're safe. Absolutely, and, and there's a whole other contingent too, and that is your little the, the child soldier. So, yeah. for instance, some of these young people that had gone through the camp and got to Australia were child soldiers. They'd been in live fire incidents where uh, they literally discharged firearms at another human being. Right. Mm. So let's let's as a hypothetical talk about that person just for two seconds. Yeah. I take a young Sudanese male, 15-year-old, who's been a child soldier overseas and he's protected his village, right? So he's been in a live fire incident. Weapon of choice over there, the AK-47. Mm. Okay, that, that's what everyone's got over there. It's a cheap, easy firearm. They're brought into the country. Um, that young person, his village ends up getting overtaken. He escapes and he ends up getting himself, through whatever means, him and his family, to um, a refugee camp and he gets assessed. On the way there, he loses half of his family. Some get eaten by a lion, uh, lions. Some get killed by rival tribes. They die of starvation or disease. So only some of them get there. Then he manages through the will of God to get assessed mm. and he ends up coming to Australia. Where does he fit here? Okay. All right. Well, the black American gangster um, kind of image fits me. I can hang out with young people who look similar to me. I like that fashion. I like that music. Okay. Mm. This, this seems to fit. That identity mm. fits me. Okay. Um, he's hanging out with his mates. Two o'clock in the morning, he decides to start walking home. And the police are doing a patrol and they come past. What's your name, mate? Well, I'm not telling you my name. Okay. Oh, you need to tell us your name. That's the law here. I don't care about the law here. I've been in a country where I've, fight, I've fought people with guns. So there's this kind of escalating level of confrontation mm. to the point where the young person ends up getting arrested because there's this class, clash of understanding both from the young person and from the police as to who they're dealing with at that moment in time. Yeah. That was a common common issue that we were having. Mm. We needed to understand that and hopefully it's gotten better now. I haven't been in touch with the police in the area for, you know, the last couple of years but hopefully it's getting better. But mm. that's, that's a very typical hypothetical of what was yeah. happening around mm. here. And I think the other point on top of that, like you say, you know, give us your name, what are those? Mm. It's for the young people that have, all the people that have grown up in Australia, we're used to our police force and Victorian police and that, you know, what our rights are in that situation, what their rights are in that situation. But also for a large majority of us, we haven't been a victim to that statutory body. Whereas, you know, like you were just saying, if they're in the camps and the cops are affiliated, the police over there are affiliated with a certain tribe, Mm. There might not be much of a faith in the police system here no. because they haven't been shown faith back home. No. So even for them, there could be a level of fear of, well, why do you want to know my name? What distrust. do you want from me? I've done nothing wrong. Yeah. It's all yeah. about distrust, fear of authority. Yeah. You know, in certain parts of Africa, especially where we went, you don't mess with the police. Mm. You mess with the police, you're going to disappear. Mm. You know, here it's a different story. It's, it's, it's you know, we run a, a different um, judicial system where, you know, a crime would equal some sort of penalty, but mm. in a graded way. It's not you do something wrong, That's you'll cut your hand off, okay? Mm. It's not that. It's different. So there's there's a whole different um, understanding and approach to it all as well. Mm. Mm. Using that scenario, if, if that same young person was um, in Sudan 
and they were stopped by two members of the police or the military, hey, what's your name? Mm. You would be immediately in a very different situation mm. to to answering that question here. Mm. Hey, no worries, mate. Thanks for that. Have a good night. What have you? Yeah. And how would that young person be able to differentiate or, or be able to understand quickly enough that, you know, um, it's not going to be like all the other times, his friends, cousins, mm-hmm. family members, people in the community that have all had really negative yeah, feelings with. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. When you started working back here in, in Melbourne in your community services role or policing role, yeah. did you talk talk with many um, Sudanese people about the fact that you had gone to Sudan? Yeah, I did. Did they, did they really enjoy that conversation? Or Yes and no. Um for, for for some of them, they saw it. They saw it in a uh, I won't say a negative way, but they were they were critical of it. You know, it's not going to change anything. You wasted your time. You're, you're fighting against a monolithic creature. It's, you're never going to be able to change the attitudes that occur here in Australia. There's systemic racism. There's systemic issues around uh, dealing with us. You know, that's never going to change. But some of them were like, "Thank you, thanks yeah. for what you did, and, and thanks for bringing that information back," because they, in some way or another, experienced some sort of change. And I'm not saying I changed the world, but but I helped to change a little bit around the suburb here, you know, mm. um, through some of the strategies we had and, and the approaches we had. So, you know, I, I built friendships with young people out this way, you know, and they're, they're lasting friendships. I can still go to certain parts of the area here and, and, and sit down and have a meal with some of the young people, you know, because yeah. we've, we've become friends, you know, and I'm yeah. proud of that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the initiative to the, the, in terms of the, the police set up for you and your colleagues to travel there, mm. I am surprised mm. but also happy to hear yeah. that yeah. happen because it wouldn't I could have also imagined a scenario where someone says hey why don't we send a few police officers yeah to um to Sudan on yeah. a fact-finding mission yeah, yeah. and someone laughing going as, just... as if we're going to be sending yeah. someone on the other side of the world to find this information out yeah. to better our practice absolutely like, unfortunately I kind of think that but yeah. I'm like I said happy and surprised yeah. to hear that they did that it's really cool yeah it is it's really good cool. and, and certainly you're you're um Views were shared mm. frequently through the police. Why can't we just get this information from mm. a community member, off the internet, mm. uh, a training, you know? Google. Why do, we, yeah. why do we need to spend so much money taking police resources away that could be spent? But I made sure that I paid it back, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. That was running training for police, running training for NGOs, um, you know, training to make sure that this area saw the saw the benefit of having spent the money on myself and, uh, and sending me on those those trips. So. Yeah. Mm. And I think a big part there is, you know, money isn't necessarily about wealth and That's sometimes true. the most wealth is found in knowledge. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. and if your your knowledge is your power in the work mm. that you do and if you can bring back something even a little bit different or you can confirm at least a little bit of people's mm. beliefs or concerns about something that's going on on the other side of the world. And I think the reality is, like when you just said that, I thought of straight away, you know, I'm a bit cynical about the Herald Sun, but there's the, the, the test and it's... With, how would this go if it was on the front page of the Herald yeah. Sun? And the reality is that the media that we utilise in Australia just can't be trusted. It's never 100% reflective of mm. what's actually the truth. Mm. And I think that would probably, if we were, like you just said, to have a look on the internet or mm. have a look at, you know, certain people within communities, I don't know if you would have got as good a reflection mm. of what was going on mm. or even the knowledge to be able to talk with such passion about the camps and where you went and, you know, child soldiers I just don't think it would have the same pizzazz. Yeah, true. As it true. does, because your lived experience is often a better reflection than something you read or that you just learn about online. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I guess, um, yeah, you're right. We could have got that information off the net, but having a human being, a 
assess it. Yeah. Uh, focus on what parts were valuable and what weren't instead of using um, media-based sensationalism and bias and things yeah. like that to influence the view. It was far better. And plus the way that I was assessing it was what do the police need to know here? So I was gathering information and reconnaissance based on what I thought would form good training for the police and people dealing with the community. Um, so, so, yeah, it was it was more informative and more targeted and strategic mm. sending me over than just gathering it off the net. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know any of the things you mentioned that they go to the camp to learn about Australia or wherever yeah. they're migrating to? The OSCO program. OSCO. Yeah, so it's what the are Australian they teaching Cultural them? Orientation Program. Um, the Australian Cultural Orientation Program. It's, <laughs> it's a it's, Yeah, it is. It is. It's a contract agency that's responsible all over the world yeah. for sitting in refugee camps around the world and once someone gets assessed to uh, be accepted into Australia, then they go through the two-week program. That's my understanding. I hope I haven't um, yeah. misinformed the, the listeners in any way, but that's, that's what my understanding has been over the years. Within that two-week program, they go through political system, currency, um, cultural nuances, you know, and how Australia is a welcoming country but there's certain aspects of our culture that, that you need to respect. Um, there's uh, the transport system. There's, um, uh, like, your three levels of government from from local, state to, you know, federal. Yeah. They go through those. They do a bit of general knowledge about the history of the, 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 uh, the country as well and how we formed our country and what cultures... So it's, it's a pretty in-depth program, right? but I guess you've got to assess who the recipient is and at that point in time, what's their capacity to learn all this? You know? Yeah. If I've just bolted through the jungle to get away from tribesmen and people trying to kill me and my family, I don't know. And that then you're like, here, this is a Mikey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> you just tap on and yeah, tap off. And that, that switch over there will switch the lights on and that tap over there gives you clean water. Don't worry, you're not going to get sick. But if you do... Go on, go to the door. Oh, hang on, you need a Medicare card. You've got to fill this form out. Oh, yeah. It's a minefield. It's a minefield. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. It's, it is wild. Yeah, it is wild. And and I guess the, the trainers that, that are around the world that work for Oscar are amazing people. They yeah. really are. And they take into account the, the, the potential compromise that someone comes with in relation to absorbing info. They're amazing people. They yeah. really are. And their heart's in the right place. But they're working with a potentially fluid system here. You know, yeah, so absolutely. A lot of challenges. The challenges, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And so. the best they can do with the resources they have mm. yeah, as well. Yeah. Is that you speak about um, the trip to Sudan and it's obviously one that's quite memorable for you. Yeah, it's a big one. Of all of them that you did with the UN, is it with the UN? Yeah. Victoria yeah. Police under the guise of the UN. Yeah. AFP as well. Yeah. 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 What is that the most... The one that stands out as the most memorable for you? Um, yes, that, that's probably the biggest one. It had a, the most fundamental effect on me personally. Mm. Um, probably the other one that we did, oh, there's two. Another one I did was a, a part of a humanitarian, it was almost a charity mission. Um, myself and about 30 other people rode push bikes across Cambodia um, and we raised a whole heap of money for a um, an orphanage over there that, that only deals with young people under the age of 14. It's called the New Hope Orphanage that deals mm. with young people under the age of 14 that have contracted HIV from the sex trade. So that was pretty full on. And, and I won't lie, there were nights where I was crying. It just yeah. was horrible, some of the things that you experienced over there. There were kids that had low-level viral load, meaning they looked reasonably healthy. There were kids over there that had high-level viral load and had developed 
and AIDS from, from HIV. So they, they, gone, they were really, really sick. Um, so we raised a lot of money for them and, and that one probably had, again, a massive impact on me uh, personally just to see young kids and, and, you know, imagining how they'd actually acquired that disease, yeah. you know. Mm. How that and, occurred. You know, this, this camp, it's run by an American, uh, uh, an American couple um, who are being actually partially partially funded by the Bill Clinton Foundation. Okay. Um, there was about uh, 200 young people in that camp and, and the, the couple would do, had a whole heap of people working. They were developing these young people to become self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, so, so they were helping them educate. Um, they were helping them understand how to cook so they could one day run a restaurant. They had these little cafes that they were running and they had the kids working in there as well. So, so they were developing these young people um, and obviously having they had uh, doctors who were giving them, you know, intensive medical treatment as well, antiretrovirals and things like that to keep them healthy. But, wow, what a trip that was. That was unbelievable. Yeah. Really, really and the, 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 the way you raised funds was by riding bikes across... Cambodia. Yeah. So how long, how many days were you riding for? Oh, uh, how, how, many, how many days did it take us? I think it took us about two weeks to ride across. I think we raised about 40 grand. So wow. About, there's a lot of us. So, you know, all yeah. us, it was a team effort. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that one, I, 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 was wor- I was working, so I was officially there as a police officer, but I wouldn't, I, I don't think I was there as a police officer, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. In a moral uh, sense, personal or moral sense. So, yeah, yeah. I was there to understand, you know, what was going on with the Cambodian community and, again, bring information back yeah. you know, to help inform. Um, but, yeah, that one that one was more of a personal trip, I think. Mm. So To put that, I don't know if you can do this, but yeah. to put that in context for people like me who are geographically challenged mm-hmm. and that might be listening, mm. the distance in which you oh, rode yes. over two weeks okay. from, say, like somewhere in Victoria to somewhere else yeah. or, yeah. you know, are we talking like it? you've ridden to Sydney or...? Yeah, roughly, it was about that. Oh, yeah, so Sydney's give or take a thousand, right? Yeah, right. I think it was about seven hundred k's that we rode. Roughly. Okay, seven. I think I can't remember. It was such a long time ago. Yeah, I had a sore butt. <laughs> I did. And we all suffered oh from gosh. butt rash. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, was, but if you want to see a country, ride it. Do it on push bike. You mm-hmm. interact with the community. Um, you have to pay bribes to get past uh, places. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's yeah. you you will get the organic trip. Yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll see it in the most deepest sense. I'll do that with my cheap coronavirus flights. That's it. That's it. Good. Was this, this wow. wasn't just another opportunity for you to pull on a lycra bike shot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, or right maybe it was. I finished it with a star, star jump. jump. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I finished it with a star jump. Yeah, for Fantastic. Sure. That wasn't embarrassing, though. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, it was good. So you mentioned um, Cambodia. Oh, actually, it's Underground Railroad. That's a part of the one of the um, initiatives in Cambodia, isn't it, in the sex trade? Uh, I might I have to fact-check that. Yeah, I don't know that one. Yeah. I just I don't something that. that popped into mind when you said that. I know the, there's a heap of documentaries um, on the sex trade in Cambodia specifically. Yeah, it's huge. It's um, huge. I'm pretty sure it's the Underground Railroad. So it was part of, I mean, some, some, something that in part my team had a bit of a focus on. Yeah. Um, the multicultural team who were looking at that at the time um, in relation to some of the sex slavery and trade that was going on. Mm. But obviously there's some more focused uh, policing units that are looking at that and constantly... Uh, at the moment, so yeah. is that because there's a connection between sexual exploitation here in Australia yep. from, uh, I guess, Cambodian Southeast Asia, yeah, moving the, the entire Southeast Asian community, yeah, definitely. Okay, there's there's a there's a big focus. Um, it, it comes about from a number of ways. So some can be almost a, a, a type of bribery where they will promise the um, the the 
the victim, I guess, in this. Um, you know, riches, a job, all sorts of opportunities in Australia, and, they, and you know, the, the scouts, so to speak, bring them to Australia. And when they get to Australia, they basically tell them, you know, the reason why you're here is for this. If you try to escape, we'll kill you and your family. And so the, there's the threats of harm to them and their family, which is horrible. They take their passports so they can't escape. And, you know, there's all sorts of threats of potential harm that, that will occur. So they're too scared to go. And then they end up working in the trade and, and just becoming a victim to that trade. So, for, for, you know, indefinitely. Yeah, it's, it's really scary. Naively, which is probably a good thing, um, I guess I stereo, wouldn't have stereotyped that um, sort of sexual exploitation of, of people from migrant countries and what have you mm. as, a, as, as a system that functions within, though, the, with, within the country that they're from, um, that people, tourists or mm. local people may, mm. um, I guess, access mm. um, young people or adults but, but are sex slaves mm-hmm. as such. But, but you're saying that people are coming to Australia, um, which kind of blew my mind just for a second. There. Yeah, right. Because I think when I stereotypically think about um, people accessing, um, like, sex workers, mm. I think of people, you know, um, consenting adults. Of course, there's uh, non-consenting adults and non-consenting young people and what have you that have been exploited. Yeah. Mm. Um, but like we probably, uh, most of us have, you know, we've, if we've driven through St Kilda or mm. some other areas where we mm. know that, Grace Street, um, yeah, that people are um, like doing sex work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm, I kind of not I'm coming in with a question there. Sure. But I guess sure. I'm just kind of blown away. Yeah. But that actually occurs here for some reason. I'm surprised. Yeah. I, I guess for confidentiality's sake, I've, I've got to be a bit careful how I answer this question. But Absolutely. certainly, there is a strong um, underground. Obviously, there's a strong sex trade in Australia, but there's a very strong uh, um, sex slavery trade whereby people are being brought into the country under the guise of being given job opportunities or other opportunities yeah. in Australia and then um, they're, they're essentially, for want of a better term, being held hostage here yeah, wow. uh, for fear of uh, death or harm okay, yeah. to them and their family. So um, one of the strong areas where we're seeing themes around this is from the Southeast Asian countries, but th- th- that's not just, yeah. it's not exclusive to that area. Yeah. Um, you know, Federal police uh, across the world sure. have a very strong focus on this, yeah. but sadly, the, the criminals are a step ahead of the police, you know, constantly. And so the police are chasing based on reconnaissance information and whatever they can get, some yeah. sort of intelligence, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm. No, and and to be fair, um, on your point, I think we might we could probably leave it there for that because mm. obviously mm. there's a lot of things going on, a lot of work, you know, and in the um, background and what yeah, have you. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah completely um, hear, hear you mm. on that. Um, could you talk us about talk to us about another trip of yours with the? Yeah, you said the there police? was two. Yeah, that yeah. Um, uh, the Thai Burma border was a big one. Okay, so okay. Thai Burma border. Um, the Thai Burma the Thai Burma border has, uh, I think, to memory, and and again, the listeners will probably Google this and correct me, but I think there's <laughs> four four large refugee camps along the Thai Burma border in the Maysot area. May one the biggest one is the Maysot or May La Ong refugee camp. Um, and that sits aside a big mountain on the side of the mountain on the Thai Burma border. Mm. Um, again, somewhere around seventy thousand people live in that camp. And um, and the interesting part about that particular camp is, you've got a variety of different religious uh, denominations there. So Muslim, um, uh, Christian, uh, Buddhist, animist, all different religions all coexisting in there really peacefully. Wow. So there's barely any. There there is. Don't get me wrong. There's always going to be some 
some tension and conflict within you put a lot of people together, they're gonna yeah. they're gonna fight, right? But surprisingly, in comparison to other camps, that one is really exclusive in, in that it's very low level. Yeah. Um, they're very peaceful. They, they, they run their own. Like if you walk through it, it feels like you're walking through um, a type of village. There's little shops mm. where they sell food. There's little shops where they, they've grown their own food and they're, they're bartering it out for wow. exchange. There's all sorts of things. So um, it's, a, it's a really unusual camp. And quite literally, people will go to that camp and actually not want to leave. Mm. They don't want to leave. So it's, it's everything that they need is there. Yeah. yeah, They've got food. They've got water. They've got health. They've got education. They've got everything that they need in the camp. So that was uh, that was a really interesting trip. I worked uh, closely with IOM over there, the Ausco program. Mm. I taught English over there and, again, um, got to understanding the community and what they were coming through. The, the best part about that trip was I, I delivered some training, um, some English language training and some, some education training to think it was let's say 20 people okay they're all Burmese refugees and when I say Burmese all of the different tribes so so all of the different tribes dialects and tribes that were coming in and um uh anyway I I I did that trip I came back to Australia four months later I was at the uh, adult migrant education service or AIMS up the road here running some training for newly arrived community members and I look in the crowd and there's two people in there and I'm know them i don't know how or where <laughs> but i know them and they came up to us a male and a female we're pushing a pram no they came yep they came up to me and they said do you remember us in really blo- broken english and i said oh, yeah, i recognize you but where have i done some training with you somewhere in dandenong and they said no you met us in Maysot. and wow. i said you were joking yeah so we got a photo together and yeah they, they'd ended up uh, having a baby so oh. yeah they ended up having a baby over the, uh, here when they got back so they came over pregnant uh, and they ended up having the baby here. So it's amazing, yeah. amazing. And they, they were doing really, really well, really well. They were engaged in their English language classes. Um, they were looking at uh, developing into some skills to get some work and all sorts of stuff. So that was a really cool trip as that well. That is so cool. Yeah, How was, amazing was, is that? You just, I tell you, the biggest things that come out of those trips is understanding the resilience of some human beings and what they can go through mm. just to survive and get themselves back mm. to, to life again. And and yeah, you can criti- the ignorant, ignorant person will criticise, ah, there's too many migrants here and there's too many refugees. You cannot know what someone's come with, you know. No. So oh, yeah. you, you can't, you just can't know, you know. A lot of these people will come here. Um, it was actually in the organisation you work for, Nat, I won't mm. say who that is until mm. you're ready to say that, but, but the organisation you work for, there was a young person that used to come to the drop-in centre um, who'd been shot in the head mm. by... I don't know if you remember or know of that person, but he'd been shot in the head at an acquired ray injury running from a rival tribe. So wow. got to the camp, got treated, assessed, yeah. and he was here as a okay. refugee. So it's amazing. It's funny you say that, and I think that there was a moment there when you were talking a, a couple of stories ago yeah. um, when you spoke about the um, you went into the camps and they were giving you their last bowl of rice sure. and they're yeah. just these people that have experienced such adverse trauma, but they're just still so giving. And I think even it popped into my mind again when you were talking about um, Burma purely because, and it's going to sound like a bit wanky in the context of what we're talking about with what I'm about to say, but I went and did a yoga retreat in Thailand. Okay, yeah. And a lot of the staff at the yoga retreat I visited were from Burma. And so they had come down and they were all from um, a similar tribe. I'm not too sure what that was. Um, But were there earning money and sending it back to their families that were still in Burma. And they were some of the most beautiful people to engage with. I'm still in contact with them now. Like when we left, 
I'm not an overly um, emotional person, you, should, yeah. you could say. Like I, yeah. I'm not a massive crier or anything yeah, like yeah. that. But when we left, I was bawling my eyes out because of the emotional connection that you built with these people that had nothing mm. but were willing to give you everything yeah. and they were still so bloody happy. And it's a theme that you see amongst, you know, developing countries yes. that they have nothing but they're still so grateful and happy with what they do have. And that's something that we, it's an essence that we lose in the Western world. And I think that's why a lot of Westerners like to travel to, you know, developing countries because you get that interaction yeah. with with those different cultures, but it's just, yeah, it's, it just kept mm. popping into my mind about Definitely. they're just so grateful for what they have and for their new experiences. And even if they are given a, a, an additional amount of opportunity to come to a, a country where they, you know, can recreate their own life, mm. um, but even if they were at home, they're just still so grateful for being alive and what they do have. And that's I think it. that's something that if we could bottle that mm. and spread that, our society would just be a yeah. lot more harmonious and beautiful Absolutely. to be a part of. They're humble. There's this, yeah. this warmth and this humbleness about them. And uh, you're right, Westerners go overseas to try to get yes. a taste of that, you know, like I, yeah. want, I want that. What is that? Yeah. And then we come back here and we get back into our pace again and our frequency and we forget the, the humbleness and the respect of other human beings and we're back in the pace of fighting and this and that and I've got to go, go, go and take care of the myself. The rat race, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and that self-preservation, the ego mm. kicks in, you know. They don't have ego. It's no. like, I'm here for you. What do you need? I'm yeah. going to give it to you, you know. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's, it's very heartwarming, yeah, and I, you're right. The whole world could do with a bit of that. We yeah. put it in the water. <laughs> yeah. How do you bottle it? <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, the yeah. million-dollar question. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Hmm. It's been an interesting conversation today. It has. It's been amazing. It has. Like, We're on the journey. journey. Absolutely. It's yeah. all part of the all journey. All around the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you have been. We haven't. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. You're not yeah. Your retreat in Thailand doesn't quite What a wanker. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad saying that in that contest. So, well, I've had a ball with you guys. Thank you very much for having me on. No, thanks really for coming. really enjoyed having a good chat. So it's been, yeah. it's been really, really fun. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Before thanks. we send you off and say goodbye, I have one more question. Yes. If you could give any tidbit or advice to the new workers coming into the field with mm. your wealth of experience, what would it be? Self-care. Let me say it again. Self-care. <laughs> Make sure you take care of self because if you do not maintain your self-care, you are not going to be the effective person you want to be. You're not going to be the best version. You're not going to be helping everyone else. So take care of yourself. Yeah. Um, life, the job, the sector, it'll take from you as much as you give. And so if you don't know how to meter that, when you first get in the job, you don't know how to meet or engage it, you'll fall in and you'll end up getting a bit of fatigue and that can compromise your professionalism and your ability to do your job and start to question as to whether or not you really like it, you know, if this is for you. But self-care, absolutely. Yeah, yeah perfect. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks for being Thanks, everybody. See you later. Really Bye. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> that All was right. awesome, Joey. Kicked the toxes, didn't we? We did good. We did good, I think. Yeah. yeah, really great. That was, thank you so much. No worries, brother. No, really, it's good. Thanks, really good man. chat. I appreciate it. No, you're welcome, great to man. Meet you. No, it's good. Thanks for listening to another episode of Knowledge on Tick. Please like and share the podcast, invite your friends and colleagues into the group and get in touch if there are any guest speakers you'd like to hear from or any topics you'd like covered. Take care and enjoy your week.